Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to MedTech Talk, episode number 122. It's great to have you back. Happy New Year. It's great to be back on the podcast. I had a wonderful break. I hope you did the same. Made a brief stop at JP Morgan earlier this week. I uh, saw some of you there. Wish I could have spent more time to see more, but we'll see you on May 30th at our MedTech conference in Minneapolis. More news on that in a minute. First, our guest today is Jeff Ross. He is the CEO of a very cool regenerative medicine company called Miro Matrix. I'll let Jeff tell you about its technology, but it's a fabulous story. And Jeff's got a, an interesting path to the CEO office. But before we get into the story, I wanted to uh, tell you a little bit more about the MedTech Conference. Again, it's happening on May 30th. That's the day of the conference. If you recall, though, we'll be uh, starting on May 29th with an opening reception. It's going to be uh, open to everyone in attendance. So it'll be a, a great night of networking. That way you can hit the ground running on May 30th at the MedTech Conference. Make sure you go to medtechconference.com to register. There is a code. I usually save these little buggers for the end of the podcast as a sort of Easter egg for folks. But uh, if you type in MedTech Talk as you register, you'll save $200 off the current discounted rate of $995. So you'll basically get into the conference for half price. This is only good until the end of January. So I would love to get you on our list of attendees. The list is growing by the day. Would love to have you uh, on that list. So please do register sooner. Make sure you get to it before the end of this month. I also want to announce a, uh, a keynote speaker. I'll, I'll let you know who that is during the break, but it's a great name. We're very proud to have them up on the agenda and up on the stage. So uh, please do join us on May 30th at the MedTech Conference. Now let's get into this podcast with Jeff Ross of Miro Matrix. Well, Jeff Ross, welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. Tom, it's a pleasure to be here. So I know Matrix. Uh, you call yourself a biotech company on your website, but this is the MedTech Talk podcast and you are in Minnesota. So for all those reasons and much more, I'd like to claim you as a MedTech company for the day. Is that okay? That's okay with me. <laughs> and you worked at Guidance, so you, you got that, that lineage as well. You know, and it's actually pretty common. I mean, this, this topic comes up more than you think. From the standpoint, you know, we'll get into the technology a little bit later, the idea of creating a transplantable organ, because unlike straight biotech, where you may be given an injection or something, now we're dealing with something that wants to be implanted. So I, I think it's very fair that we kind of straddle both of those fields. Oh, we, that's great. Well, I'm glad you, you agree. Uh, so, well, normally I start off with learning a bit about our guests, but because your, your mirror matrix may not be known by some, uh, tell us a bit about what the company does and what your technology is. So our mission is to eliminate the organ transplant waiting list. Um, and the way that we really do that is our technology that's called perfusion decellerization and recellerization. And that's the notion of being able to take a solid organ, in our case, one that's going to be naturally discarded anyways from a pig, uh, and we perfuse a mild detergent through it, which removes all the cellular material, leaving you with this perfect scaffold. Kind of say it's analogous to remodeling your house. If you think about the drywall as cells, we essentially are able to go in, take that out. But just like your house, the architecture's left there. So a kitchen's still a kitchen, the plumbing's still intact. So now we've got this perfect scaffold of a whole organ. And the next step is to reanimate that by infusing human cells into it. And our goal is to be able to use that technology to create every type of organ inside the body, whether that's a liver, a lung, a kidney, a heart, 
to really solve this chronic shortage of, of organs that exist today. I'm not a biologist and I didn't go past high school biology, but what is left once you remove the cells? I mean, that sounds like pretty much everything. Yeah, there's actually a lot more than you think that remains there. And it's, it's really the proteins and it's, it's termed extracellular matrix. Um, it's a lot of collagen to get technical, you know, proteoglycans, other types of proteins and substrates that really make it up. Um, but it's kind of an amazing process, right? I mean, if you think about all the way back to development, we all came from essentially one cell. And as that cells the cell divides, it needs to create proteins and matrix around it to give structure to the whole organism and more specifically our or organs. So the cells actually secrete and make this perfect matrix that they want to live in. And I'd say 20 years ago, everyone thought that the extracellular matrix was just this kind of byproduct. It, it didn't have any activity. And what the last 20 years has really taught us is there's a there's enormous activity with that matrix. And to be able to keep that in its pristine state really allows you to get the function of cells back to the level that you'd need to bioengineer functional tissue. So if you would walk us through the process of it, you say the organs themselves come from animals that have pigs that have been uh, already part of the food system. They've already been slaughtered for food. Is that correct? That's that's absolutely correct. Now, our technology, we, we could use human cadaver organs as well. Um, but the challenge with those is that you get you would source every age range and every disease state uh, associated with it. And as I just mentioned, the cells really interact with the matrix. So if the matrix is damaged. Uh, that has an effect on the cells that are actually put back in and you can't get that same level of functionality with it. Um, so we prefer to use porcine or, or pig organs as a starting point. And as you pointed out, I mean, every day in, in America, there's thousands and thousands of organs that are primarily discarded. Um, and in our process, we want to reuse those. And, and the way that it works is we source those organs from various slaughterhouses. Those then are sent to us. And then we're able to uh, perfuse a mild detergent through them, which, again, just kind of goes in, dissolves all the cellular material, but leaves that matrix perfectly intact. Uh, many have kind of called it a ghost organ. If you see them, they're all white, um, but you're able to still hook, uh, cannulate them or perfuse a solution through the vasculature. And, and you can see the organ and all the vessels actually still completely intact. No, the, the images on your, your website are, are pretty stark, and it's uh, miromatrix.com, M-I-R-O, matrix. Uh, so what is the origin of the technology? What, when did the, the company was founded in 2009? What, what happened before that? That's right. So this technology actually came out of the University of Minnesota. Uh, the two inventors were Doris Taylor and Harold Ott. Uh, it was actually in Doris Taylor's lab at that point. And they were really trying to look at uh, this notion of regenerative medicine and this notion of how do you create viable tissue? I mean, what regenerative medicine is really about is, is how do we move from treating diseases to now curing diseases? And, and what they were specifically looking at is, as we discussed before, the body creates these protein scaffolds and, the, and how do you, how can you take advantage of it? And up to that point, people have tried to take advantage of that and they use a process called immersion decellerization. And that's where you take a tissue, you'd put it in a decellerization solution. And it would essentially diffuse from the outside in. So it would kind of diffuse in, but it limited it to really thin substrates of just a couple couple millimeters thick. Um, what Doris and Harold decided to do is what if we went from the inside out? So what if we used a vasculature and a cavity to perfuse a detergent in, try to dissolve all that cellular material? Could we keep the perfect scaffold in place? Um, and what they found is they were successful. And, and that really launched tissue engineering 
from these thin substrates to something that was clinically relevant, something that could start to hold that promise to really solve this large unmet clinical need. Um, so they published on that in Nature Medicine in 2008, and that's where they actually took a heart out of a rat, perfusion decelerized it, put it in a bioreactor. And what a bioreactor is, is just kind of a fancy word for a sterile environment where you can control the uh, inputs and outputs of it. And they perfused it, pumped a mild uh, solution through it, a cell culture solution through it to keep the cells alive, seeded it with cardiomyocytes or heart cells, and eight days later started beating again. Um, this really shocked the whole uh, tissue engineering field because, as I mentioned, it took something from thin substrates or thin sheets to suddenly whole organs uh, and demonstrated the ability to put cells back in there and get some level of function back out. So we licensed that technology in 2009, spun out Mural Matrix from the University of Minnesota uh, and have been raising funds and advancing the technology towards the clinic ever since. Yeah, what is the uh, the origin of the name Mural Matrix? Yeah, interesting story there. So the inventor, um, Doris Taylor, her favorite uh, painter is Moreau. So when we when we first were in discussions with her and kind of looking at um, you know, what, what a good name would be. She wanted something that kind of had that abstract feel and something that was different and revolutionary. And that's how we came up with Moreau or Miro, uh, and then added matrix. And, um, as it, as it would be to found out later, Moreau or Miro, uh, is Latin for wonder as well. So it kind of has two meanings, both from that, you know, the painter standpoint, but also that Latin. So if you think about Miro or wonder matrix, you know, it's really about the power of the matrix that we're able to harness to be able to create these regenerative medicine solutions. And how does your approach, uh, how is it uh, superior or do you th how might it be more effective than efforts to, to grow these organisms, grow these tissues? We've seen obviously very various attempts to do that. I mean, I could see the, the benefits of working with an organ that's already created, but uh, then you get into supply and things like that. But what is your what is your advantage in uh, versus other regenerative medicine companies? Sure, sure. I mean, if you really look at the space, um, I would say there's two other kind of viable technologies that have really looked at how do we solve this need. And, and I think it's healthy for the field that there is so many people looking at this because it is a huge unmet need. Uh, the first is 3D printing. So we hear a lot about 3D printing. I think it has a lot of appeal uh, in the sense of of how the technology can be used and utilized in that visualization. But, you know, the challenge is, is that when we talk about decelerizing a whole organ, if we break that down, there's over a hundred different proteins that exist inside the organ itself. Um, so one is spatially, how do you print those in the appropriate spatial orientation? But then you also have to look at the vasculature, which is really key is that vascular system because most cells are very close proximity to a, to a capillary bed. And if you're not able to print that level of definition, um, you're never able to feed the cells that you're able to put back into it. So again, I, I think 3D printing has great appeal and and is working well for you know simpler structures. But really, when I think about how it goes into a whole organ and the complexity and the microstructure and how cells are responding to those microenvironments, there's really a long ways to go, in my opinion, uh, before 3D printing will be ready to to print whole organs. And then the other approach is genetic modification. So the notion is instead of taking an organ that was going to be discarded out of a pig, what if we genetically modify that pig? So now we're able to transplant that directly into a patient. And, and there's multiple groups working on this approach as well from the standpoint of 
um, trying to identify the appropriate genes we need to knock out so that when you try to place it back into a human, there won't be an immune response. This is really genotransplantation, uh, really looking at it over the last 20 years, I'd say some great advancement in the fields like CRISPR and other things have really pushed this to the forefront. Um, and they're making good progress, but they're still not there today in terms of knocking out or identifying the number of genes you really need to knock out to make that um, available to take that directly from a pig, place that into a human. Um, and if you look at this at the end of the day, let's say we're both successful. I really don't see the day that genetic modification can get to the point where you're able to take that organ out of a pig place it back into a human and have no immunosuppression. I think ultimately, you know, our advantage of our technology, perfusion decellarization, is that promise of one day of decellarizing a whole organ and then placing a patient's own cells back into that organ. So now you can have that organ that's suited primarily just for that patient, no immunosuppression. Now we're years away from that still, but that is the end goal and the end promise is to not only solve the transplant need, but also solve it in a way that we can eliminate immunosuppression. In Miro Matrix, you're, you're surprisingly close to uh, to working in humans. Surprising, at least to me. <laughs> as I think you noted in an article that I read about, but uh, read about you, it was it's talked about as if we're ten or fifteen years away from being able to to create these organs. But but you're certainly a lot closer than that. Give us an, an update on your uh, on your pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I get this question a lot. It's, you know, this technology looks really neat. It, it's almost sci-fi. But to your point that you just said, you know, it's 20 years out or so. And, and I quickly remind people, no, we're much closer than that. Um, and, and the way that we did this is we kind of de-risked it in, into steps along the way with that notion of our end goal is to create transplantable organs. What we looked at was what what's the first step that we need to prove out? The first step was really, can we take an organ out of a pig, decellarize it, and will that be tolerated by, by humans uh, without any immune responses or any issues associated with it? So for that, we actually created our first two commercial products that we've already commercialized called Miro Mesh, which is for soft tissue reinforcement, and Miro Derm, which is used for wound care. Now, at the same time, we saw a large market need, so we just didn't go after these to, to solve that question. We saw a market need and the ability to demonstrate that our technology is viable and that, you know, we're not going to have an immune related response. So by commercializing those, we demonstrated that we can control the source. We can bring uh, organs into our facility. We can effectively perfusion decellarize those, create products today. And now thousands of patients have been implanted with perfusion decellarized whole livers um, with great success associated with it. So we de-rested to that point. So we're comfortable starting with that sub, you know, starting with that material. And now the next step is, how do you demonstrate that you can get functional vasculature? What I mean by that is, if we're not able to revascularize it, I talked about those vascular conduits that remain in there, essentially the plumbing of the organ. If we can't put the endothelial cells back on the surface of those and basically place that back into a large animal model and anastomose that in, that means sewing it back in um, and then having the native blood perfused through it, there's really no way to ever engineer an organ because the vasculature is really our supply chain. It brings nutrients to our cells and it takes waste away. So that was really a key feature as well. So we demonstrated that we can we can successfully revascularize it. Now we're in the middle of adding in uh, livers, our lead organ, with over 40,000 patients annually who die of end-stage liver failure without any other types of therapies that are out there. There's no other drugs. There's no dialysis. There's no devices. So essentially, there's no alternatives for those patients. Um, 
you know, that notion of, of developing liver first. And then our next step with that is adding in hepatocytes and the liver specific cells to prove out that we have functionality. And that's going to lead us into submitting that to the FDA and hopefully human clinical studies. And what's the timeline on the human clinical studies? Is it 2020? Is that what I read? Yeah. So right now it's towards the, I mean, what we're targeting is early as the end of 2020. So if things continue to go as, as well as they have, uh, we should be in a position by the end of 2020 to initiate human clinical studies. Now, it still depends on the agency and other things along the way. Um, but I think what it does demonstrate is just how close we are and how fast we're moving towards the clinic. I will take a quick break from this podcast for an update on the MedTech conference. I am extremely proud and pleased to announce that Ashley McAvoy, Executive Vice President and Worldwide Chairman of Medical Devices for Johnson & Johnson, has agreed to give a keynote talk or, or be the guest of a keynote interview at the MedTech Conference on May 30th. So we're excited to have Ashley McAvoy there. I've had the opportunities to interview her a few times at our ophthalmology events, and uh, she just brings so much to the conversation. So very excited to have Ashley McAvoy up on stage Please do join us at the MedTech Conference again. It's, the conference is taking place on May 30th, but on May 29th, we will have an opening networking reception, reception that, uh, that you won't want to miss. So go to medtechconference.com, use the MedTech talk code. As I mentioned up top, you'll save a whole lot of money. Now let's get back into this conversation. Like any other good MedTech, you're likely engaging earlier with payers to understand how they're view how they view your technology. Can you give us uh, some insights on those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a critical question, I think, with any type of med tech product is, is reimbursement. We are fortunate from the standpoint that there's an existing DRG code associated with transplants. Um, but the challenge with that is that's a cadaveric transplant. So there's still a little unknown of, of exactly how that's going to be treated by the payer in the end. I think we are in a very fortunate situation and some of the payers I've talked to is the fact of the organs that we're going after, again, liver's our lead organ. Um, today, they have programs in, in trying to look at how they get more living donors because of the cost savings benefits associated with providing these solutions to patients as opposed um, you know, to ICU treatment and, and long-term care as that patient unfortunately slowly declines. So I think we're in a good position in terms of the health benefits um, and the cost savings to the healthcare system as we look at these organs. So you have no problem, obviously, proving that there's value in, in what you do. I mean, it's already being done. It's already valued. Yeah. And I think the other area, so our second lead organ is actually kidney. So today there's almost a half a million patients on dialysis. Um, and, and it, you know, the great thing about dialysis is, is, is it's a therapy that keeps the patients alive. The downside of dialysis is if you look at the five-year survivability of dialysis, it's about 35%. If you look at the five-year survivability of a transplant of a patient with a, who, got, who received a transplantable kidney, um, you know, the five-year survivability is over 90%. So it's just a stark contrast over you know, what these organs could do. Um, if we're able to achieve that same level of function as a cadaveric organ. And is there an opportunity, you mentioned earlier, working with or, or the, the issues with human organs, with donated organs, but if you had a healthy organ, is there an opportunity for you in the future to, uh, to clear those organs out of the cells and, and, and basically to reconstruct them in a way that, in a, create an organ that would be accepted by, uh, more acceptable by a person's body and by, by a host? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly it, it's an open question. Um, 
But I think what we've demonstrated by commercializing our first products, MuroMesh and MuroDerm, is that ability of once you decelerize that organ, you've really pulled away from, you know, you've, you've extracted out those cross-species antigens or things that the immune system is going to react to. So I think we have good preliminary clinical data to demonstrate that there's not really going to be an issue there. Um, so I, I don't think there's a big need to try to find a human source because, again, what we don't want to compete with is the cadaveric human supply today. I mean, we, you know, the, the number of patients who are able to receive an organ today, while limited, um, we want that to continue to go on. We want to be able to serve those patients who can't receive a, a transplant or can't even make the list today uh, to provide a, a new source. That's a great point. Let's talk a bit about uh, about financing. How uh, much money have you raised from investors, and can you identify uh, some of your investors? I know you raised around recently that included a strategic that uh, has, at least at the point of the report, did not want to be identified. Can you uh, shed any light on that? Yeah. So today we've raised about forty-seven million dollars, um, and with that, you know, we've been able to commercialize those two products. So got a good track record on, on what we've been able to do with the funds that we've raised. Just recently closed up a round, as you mentioned last summer, uh, which is really um, dedicated towards advancing our whole organ programs, transplantable liver and a transplantable kidney. And with that, we did have a large strategic multi-billion dollar company that came in. Um, but unfortunately, at this point, I can't. They, they still want to remain confidential at this point. I think there'll come a day where, where we'll be able to release that information. Um, but for the time being, we have to keep that confidential. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I, I think what that does is it does further validate the technology, though, to start to see some of these strategics come in and just that interest, which I think highlights, you know, the level of data that we've generated and how much we continue to de-risk the technology. Sure. Another great point. What, what does the company's long term future look like? And I want to get into your, your background too, but I'm just curious at this point, you're, you're raising money from strategics. You're not saying who it is, but I don't know if it's a med tech company or a pharma company. Is it, uh, is, is, do, do you see an acquisition being a likely outcome from one of those two types of players or, or how does uh Miro matrix play out or, or end up, where does it end up five years from now? Right. I, I think it's, we're fortunate in the fact of, as in the intro, you talked about, you know, med tech, biotech. I think we're suitors for both of those, right? Certainly have interest from med tech companies and certainly have interest as well from biotech companies. Um, you know, if I look forward and you never really can totally predict where you get to, but I would say, you know, in, in five years when we're in the clinic, it's either going to be an acquisition or an IPO is what I'd look like for the likely scenarios of an exit. Well, either would be welcome, I'm sure. Uh, so let, let's talk a bit about you. I mean, how did you uh, end up in, well, you're in the med tech industry, but now you're in the biotech slash med tech industry. What, uh, what brought you into this, uh, into this field? You know, Tom, I've always been dedicated towards uh, helping people. So I, I think as I look at my studies, as I look at my jobs and my career path, was really driven by how do you have an impact? How are you able to create therapies and help people long term? And I think that's really driven me uh, to where I am today. And where did your uh, your career start? Where did you go to college and uh, how did you enter the, the med tech industry? Yeah. So I, I, my undergrad was in at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, you can imagine how cold it is up there. They should have tunnels up there uh, to stay out of the snow in the winter. Uh, but great undergrad great exposure to research. And I was really, when I came out of undergrad, I was kind of torn, again, driven by that fact of 
um, wanting to help people. And, and I didn't know if I wanted to go to med school or stay in research. And I'd done research all throughout my undergrad and was really intrigued by it and decided to take a couple of years and just do research and, and try to flush this out. And at the end of it, what my epiphany kind of came at the end after I had had, had followed or, or watched a couple of doctors and interacted with them was that was really driven me about medicine and my appeal for it is how can you create therapy? So really, ultimately, to have your highest impact and help people is not necessarily that face-to-face -face interaction, which is great for the physicians who do that every day, but it's pretty powerful to think about the ability to create new therapies that can impact, you know, not just hundreds or thousands of patients, but potentially millions of patients. So that then led me into graduate school as a master's for biomedical engineering. Once I got my master's, I went and worked at Guidant. Um, and was very fortunate early on, led up a biologic division uh, for, a, for a device company, really looking at stem cell therapy for heart failure and different techniques, you know, because we had access to all devices and other things. Can you start to change things using devices that may help uh, stem cells and graft? Um, phenomenal couple of years there. It was, it was great. I give a lot of people advice that you know, if you're able to work for a large company early on in your career, it's actually a great exercise because you can learn about culture. You learn about structure, um, a lot of really good things. So I was there for a couple of years, decided to go back and get my doctorate in genetic cell biology and, and molecular biology and really studied stem cells a little bit further and in a further deep dive into regenerative medicine and that ability to engineer new living tissue, I would say, is, is really what my doctorate was about. Worked for Atherosis for a while, which was a stem cell company and, and still is, uh, and kind of looking at various tweaks on the technology for different applications and also kind of scale up. After Atherosis in, in graduate school, went on and worked at Sermotics as their director of R&D, which was a great time as well. Another mid-stage public company at this point, but really focused on how could you change using chemistry and different types of biologic processes the surface of devices to get them more biologic in nature. Um, and then what, what Miro Matrix really brought together is both sides. It brought together that device side. If you think about extracellular matrix, it brought together the stem cell side from, um, you know, all my research and studies and other things and, and kind of brought all that together as the perfect fit. So very fortunate to have found that career path that led me in the direction that it did. Now, you didn't come aboard as CEO. You joined as vice president of product development. What was uh, what went into that decision to to join a company that, uh, while it sounded exciting, I'm sure there was a lot of risk uh, involved at the time. And Cermetics, as you mentioned, is a is a good company, a stable company. Absolutely, you know, Cermetics was going really well. I had a great career path there as well. Um, and it was kind of a funny story. I got a, I got a call one day from a headhunter and basically said, you know, I, I keep bumping into your name in, in regenerative medicine. Would you be interested in talking? I said, you know, I'm really happy in the position that I'm at. Um, and then basically said, but this, you got to hear about this technology. I said, all right, what, what exactly is this technology? And describe the technology coming out of the University of Minnesota with Doris and, and Harold's work, which I was familiar with. Um, said, all right, you're right. We, we absolutely need to talk. And, and what it came down to, and, and Tom, to your point, there was certainly risk. I mean, when I joined, I think that we had $200,000 uh, that was raised by the CEO at that point. You know, you're, you're less than six months, uh, you know, from being cash out. Um, but when I thought about it and I thought about core values, I, I thought about what really drives me about patients. And I talked to my, obviously my wife about this as well. And 
what it came down to was this simple question or, or statement, and that is, someday when they transplanted the first organ into a patient to save them using this technology, could you live with yourself if you weren't part of that journey? And the answer was no way. Um, so the next day kind of signed up and it's been a great journey ever since. That's a great point of view. And you became CEO last year. What was that transition like? You're, you're, you're not a sales guy. You're not a marketing person. This is a, a, a not an unprecedented route, but, a, but an unusual route to, uh, to the CEO's office. It's been great. It's been a great learning experience. I've been surrounded by really um, strong people all the way around to learn areas, you know, that that I haven't either had exposure to in the past or, or needed more experience. I'd say most of my career has really built up to this point, though. If, if you look at a lot of my roles, I mean, I've put in management very early on, be exposed to different aspects of a company. And early on at Miro Matrix, too, I, I took on many of those roles in, in commercializing our first products from the regulatory side to the manufacturing side to the quality side. Um, so I, I think that really grew up in, into really allowing me to fit that position well. All right. Well, final question. Let's talk uh, just a bit about the transition to the CEO role. Do you have any advice for folks uh, as to becoming CEO? Any books that you read, any workshops you attended, any great conferences you, you visited that, uh, that helped you do your job better? I like to read up on a lot of things. I, I think in terms of management, management style, I think there's always more things to learn. I think what intrigues me about CEO is it's kind of like being a scientist in the fact that you're always looking for new techniques, new ways to learn and new ways to analyze things. Uh, a great book that I read recently was Mastering Leadership. Um, just great dynamics in terms of management, management structure and using some tools to be able to really you know, how do you maximize your performance, not only you, but also how do you grow great teams? So I think that's some of the keys to being a CEO is is knowing that you can't do everything. You've got to put a solid team in place to really be able to execute and be accountable. Well, it's a great story. Can't wait to uh, hear more about it. And thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate the conversation. Well, that wraps up our very first podcast of 2019. Thank you for returning. It's great to have you here. If you wouldn't mind doing us a few favors, telling a colleague about the podcast, subscribing to the podcast, giving a review of the podcast, or of course, just reaching out to me. I am at MedTechTom. That's on Twitter. Or you can email me, Tom at HealthAG.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. HealthAG produces this podcast and of course, the MedTech Conference. We really hope to see you there on May 29th slash May 30th. As I mentioned during the break, we're very pleased to have Ashley McAvoy of Johnson & Johnson as our first keynote guest. We'll likely have more announcements for you in the very near future about panels and other discussions. So it's going to be a great day. Our co-chairs, Leslie Trigg and Kirk Nielsen, have been working tremendously hard on this program, and I know you will enjoy it. So make sure you use the code I mentioned at the top, MedTechTalk. It'll save you a couple hundred dollars off an off an already discounted price and you can get into the MedTech Conference for nearly half price. So go to medtechconference.com, register now before the end of the month and uh, save yourself a whole lot of money. And of course, tune in next time for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.